ladies and gentlemen, and anyone who falls into an alternative category, even if that alternative category really ought to be the normative category, and also all folks who feel like they don't belong to any category and would like to tell all categories to fuck right off and stop dominating the discourse, hi. You'll recognize me as one of those utterly homogenous layman pascals you've heard so much about, and on behalf of myself and Bruce Alderman in the integral stage, welcome to another episode of our Beatrix Kiddo award-winning series, where I talk with book folks pertinent to them liminal, metamodern, integrative game B transformational new thought communities. Today, I'm thrilled to be here with rogue Canadian alt theorist and uh, brains behind the philosophy portal, Mr. Cadell Last, whose mysteries are apparently mysterious even to himself. And we'll be talking about his new anthology on the still emerging spiritual leadership implications of Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra in a volume called Abyssal Arrows. Hi, Cadell. <laughs> well, the the award for best uh best podcast intros is definitely going to go to you and and i'm always uh always uh happy to be on the integral stage and thank you for for contributing also to um the anthology on a uh, tragedy and time i i really liked your piece thank you uh yeah we'll get to that in a bit um first of all where can people get this book this this book yeah that monster <laughs> abyssal arrows yeah abyssal arrows you can find i mean the best way is to go to philosophy portal under anthologies you'll see a link to abyssal arrows and then it'll take you to amazon and you can pick either an ebook or a physical copy and uh yeah that's 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 basically that's the easiest way <laughs> fantastic Listen, when I was a kid, I assumed I would write books, which are apparently a class of artifacts in a liminal zone between mere writing and the private extension of a thought or theme to make that enriched thought available for public reflection. But then the world kind of changed and I stopped caring about books. I thought maybe it makes more sense for me to code my thoughts indirectly in fragmentary multimedia form and set them adrift in the digital ocean. But I'm hearing a lot of people now, maybe as a backlash to the encroachment of digital and simulated spaces, starting to return to hard copy objects in meat space. Is this a real trend? Do books have a future? Is there a special relevance for them to philosophical projects? Cadell last, why books? Yeah, why books? I mean, it's 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 a legitimate question. It's an interesting question to have. I, I was actually on the Parallax podcast with Tom and, and Andrew, and they were they were asking the question, what what is what is a book? And they were emphasizing just the power of the book. You know, Tom in particular was referencing, you know, the pre-Socratic books that exist and um, you know, just how mind-blowing it is that you can have have thoughts of of an other uh basically still with us uh still capable of uh influencing our thoughts uh thousands of years after they were initially written and um you know it it brings us to the historicity of the book your question on on the digital context is you know uh, we're overwhelmed I, i'll just speak for myself uh and i'm assuming it has some relevance to other people is we are overwhelmed by social media by TikTok, by instagram by by social by by facebook and these media youtube we're on youtube uh, you know these media lend themselves to what i would call an immediacy um even for example philosophy portal was inspired by theorygram uh there was a meme on theorygram which is just a loosely connected group of instagram accounts which just post uh, interesting philosophy memes all the time and there was just this meme 
um, of like an, an ideal university structure. And, and I just, it hit just like that, that would be a good university. Like <laughs> maybe I should do that, you know? So, so there's, the, but that, you know, the social media has this, this immediacy. And, and I think what the book allows and what the book opens is uh, mediation, conceptual mediation is that there's something, there's something fantastic. There's something great in the meme. Um, there's something great in, in watching podcasts or, or even blogging, but there's a different on the side of the writer there's i think an, an emotional process that you go through in writing which is hard to replicate anywhere else and like and it's a very visceral experience the difference between opening up let's say my google docs to start writing a book that i'm working on versus opening up substack to write a blog is emotionally different and the more i reflect on that difference i think it has to do with it's like emotions of recognition <laughs> it's like like i know when i po post the blog uh, a certain number of people are going to read it immediately um certain people will will like it or share it or whatever but when you're writing a book i think you're confronted with a higher order of delayed gratification <laughs> in regards to these basic dynamics of 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 recognition uh, and even to the point of questioning, you know, I, I know for me, when I was writing my doctorate, I was very big on uh, just overcoming any need for recognition at all. Yeah, that that's a uh, hard, maybe impossible to do. Uh, certainly, I'm even if I tried to rid myself of any need for recognition, I still do have need for recognition, of course, just like because I'm a human being. But at the same time, I do think that there is. Um, an, an emotional maturation, I suppose, that can that can that can occur when you start writing uh, from that from that place and and start developing your thoughts uh, over the course of months and years as a, a book demands. And, and I just think that that cannot be replaced by um, by other forms of media. And then in terms of in terms of the on the reader side, on the reader side of things, I think it, it, it you you're even irrespective of the content of the book you're reading. I think that you're you're training certain cognitive faculties, um, whether they're related to a, to attention is probably the biggest buzzword of our time, where people don't have uh, attention spans to sit down and read a book, or or whether it's just following an argument that is more than two hundred and fifty characters in length. <laughs> so those are those, well, those are some. Let's thoughts. talk about Cadell last as reader for a moment. Which what were the volumes? What were the authors in your early life that first made you feel invited to the world of the book? To, you know, made you feel like to be a yeah. thinker and writer and book producer was a noble, cool, worthwhile thing to do, and who presented you with an argument that you were willing to undertake the attentional burden of? Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, actually like my first i was i was super interested in sci-fi and fantasy originally um that was my my first love i suppose and that was before i was ever considering uh getting into intellectual uh game or academic game how many times i've read like harry potter and the lord of the rings for example i mean i don't know like <laughs> i i just got obsessed with those as a teenager but um 
you know, books like that originally, but, but then, you know, the, the first, the first books that called me, it was actually, it was a tension that called me. It was the tension between creationism and evolutionism. Um, that's what really set off my academic path. And, and I, I'm not sure if I, yeah, I think I, I started the story a little bit on that podcast we had with Dimitri, uh, on actual spirit, but, um, yeah, there was just an, an older, older guy at a family cabin. And uh, he started pointing at the animals and saying, you know, do you know where these come? Do you know where the animals come from? And I just, just said, no, I hadn't. I was a teenager. I had not uh, just th thought about it. And he was like, well, they come from God. And he starts giving me these books about creative, uh, creative design, uh, you know, intelligent design and creationism. Uh, and so I started reading them and, um, you know, was pretty open. I was genuinely open minded because I just had not read on any alternative literature. But I could tell that they didn't like Darwin. So I went to the bookstore and started buying uh, books on Darwin and evolution. And uh, and that basically got my mind uh, that 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 was the rift along which uh, my my motivation was structured, I think. So why is this book called Abyssal Arrows? Where does the title come from? Yeah, it's interesting. And I think, by the way, uh, Jason Bernstein, who's a student in the class and who's uh, presented and has an article in the book, he was he did the um, the cover art, which I think is is fantastic. But the the title Abyssal Arrows, it's it's kind of um, inspired by a similar logic to the idea of the dark renaissance, actually, where like you're combining a positive and a negative term, which is heading towards the positive. So like dark renaissance, abyssal arrows. Uh, and it's just this idea of, you know, Nietzsche, and I think, well, Nietzsche through Zarathustra, I think, is really, in terms of teaching about the overman um, confronting this abyss, the death of God, the death of God theology, um, and, and uh, at the same time trying to cultivate a, a higher order telos. Uh, so an arrow or, or a directionality. Uh, and so uh, that's sort of like um, uh, a theme, I think, that runs throughout the book. So basically, it's like combining death of God theology with still a higher order directionality would be like the and also combining this positive and negative in the direction towards the positive. What do you feel like most people get wrong about Nietzsche? Um, I had an interesting um, talk with Davud Gosley uh, a few days ago about systems and subjects, and he was um, he was he was um, asking me about my interpretations of Nietzsche as a political thinker, and saying that uh, what he doesn't like about many Nietzsche scholars is that they treat him as merely a psychological thinker. So I would I would say like pointing in the direction of and so like in systems and subjects in the third chapter, I have the idea of political overman. I say like that Nietzsche is a political thinker um, is like one idea that comes to my mind. And, and like in in the anthology, sort of this trying to go with this meta theme of leadership, that there's political, there's social, there's, um, you know, uh, issues of 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 hierarchy and directionality which are just implicit in Nietzsche um, and implicit in Zarathustra and I think it runs throughout his entire project and while I don't think that you can now now stemming from that it, for the thinkers who do accept that Nietzsche is a, is a thoroughly through and through political thinker 
I, I don't think necessarily that Nietzsche, at least I don't see in Nietzsche, the possibility of aligning with like a, a left or a right program, like a political party program. I do sort of agree with Baju's line of thought that we get a first politics or what I think he calls an arche politics um, in Nietzsche, almost like um, a first gesture which breaks with pre-Nietzschean political projects in regards to specifically the relationship between truth and power. Um, and I think that, you know, following Heidegger's interpretation of that is like, you know, the being with the big B um in in Nietzsche in regards to beings would be the will will to power and that we cannot think through any uh political problems contradictions issues of our day without taking the will to power seriously and if we do I think we end up with a certain striving for truth which turns out to be the opposite of truth How would you describe the character Zarathustra and what would you say is his story arc in Thus Spake Zarathustra? Yeah, that's that's something that's the main thing that caught my attention. That's the main thing I was focusing on while I was teaching um, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, actually. And and so like what, what I've been saying and what I try and put forward in the book is. There's the implicit message of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which we all know, which is basically the overman is the meaning of the earth. Um, and, and that's stated throughout in various ways. But what I'm really interested in is, is the, the, the implicit inner antagonisms which Zarathustra is uh, articulating throughout the book. And I actually think, I don't know for sure, but like the it's very interesting to study why the the book is divided into the four parts the way it's divided into the four parts and it seems to me like the story arc is is involving nietzsche's own coming to terms with what it means not just to be an enlightened being but an enlightened leader and the level of self-sacrifice that that entails um, and the distinction that actually is like, I thought it was like a dialectic that ran throughout the book was this distinction he makes between basically being a ripe fruit versus being ripe for your fruits. So like, this is an idea that I get is like, so like someone whose, you know, blood is as thick as honey, uh, someone who's, who's a ripe fruit metaphorically, uh, an overflowing heart, an overflowing spirit. Um, but then the narrative of Thus Spoke Zarathustra seems to be Zarathustra becoming ripe for his fruit. So like this distinction between the in itself of a ripe fruit and a for itself of a, of a ripe fruit. Um, and it's subtle, but this like that specific language, um, at least in my uh, copy of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, is pretty consistent. Like he's he's consistent with talking about this this metaphor of the ripe fruit and the in itself and the for itself of the ripe fruit um, and and specifically thinking about what it is he has to confront in himself to make that transition. In my reading, in the first part, um, one of the big things is followers turning him into a statue or an idol and, you know, confronting leaving people that he has transference relationships with which is to me incredibly painful you know um and and that distinction being related to i want children and not followers 
and and that's another really painful distinction right like is is because because like it, it's like you know followers you create a, a unity followers you create a, a group we're all in this group together and and there's a transference relationship between you know the leader and the followers but to want children is more to want people who are gonna go literally go their own way there, there's gonna be a parting there's gonna be like a series of divisions more than than one unity and then in the 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 second part of the book well just coming to my mind is well sorry before going to the second part of the book what's coming to my mind is at the third part of the book he's basically in an intimate partner conflict with life itself it seems um where life is telling him that you don't love me as much as you say you love me and that you're planning to leave me soon um and Nietzsche you get this feeling like he's in uh, he's devastated he's crying and 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 there's just this but just like confronting you know what I take that to be is like confronting like it to me it complicates the traditional notions of Nietzsche as a life affirmationalist in a simplistic interpretation now, of course he's a life affirmationalist but just that he also wrestles with life and death and and do i really love life as much as i say i'm loving life and 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 do i really want to leave life and so all of this to long story short to me all this leads up to um a precise and i don't know if nietzsche is actually planning planning to do this probably because it's nietzsche but it's like a very he's leaving us with a mythology where you sacrifice the sacrifice itself where sacrifice itself is sacrificed where the honey sacrifice is almost like it's not a sacrifice and and so and so what i mean by like almost leaving us with a, a, a myth that, that that basically transcends the idea the idea of sacrifice in christianity where where jesus sacrifices himself for all all uh all all believers all all christians it seem it seems to me like he's trying to affirm the negativity at the core of this myth and the negativity at the core of this um truth but at the same time trying to go beyond it in a very sophisticated way and then leaves us with a figure like zarathustra who um i say in the book you know he's not uh, bloody on a cross uh and he's not leaving us with sort of like a supernatural resurrection he's he's kind of leaving us with um a child spirit a child spirit a, a someone who's given birth to himself and who's trying to point the way towards the possibilities that you can give birth to yourself that's my <laughs> that's my <laughs> so you're you've invited a bunch of people to come in and write segments for this book under the um the aegis let's say of spiritual leadership those are two words spiritual leadership that are pretty ambiguous for a lot of people um what's your take on what those words mean and why did you want the notion of spiritual leadership to be the context for this volume yeah i mean I guess I, the first thing that's coming to my mind is that I had this weird idea when I was a kid that the president or the prime minister of a country sh 
would would be the smartest person in uh, in the, in the society. Uh, this was just a spontaneous uh, intuition uh, of, a, of a child. Like it must, that that person must be the the smartest person. Why why we put him at the top, right? And 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 you know, thinking about it now, it kind of makes me think like, is that what Plato was going for with the philosopher King's idea? Was Plato basically saying? The, you know the, the most philosophically thoughtfully reflective people should be the the the, the people making the, the the deep political decisions for society but then of course you know growing up and and seeing and the just the way society is evolving now it seems to be couldn't be more the opposite of that just this feeling of the more I encounter, um adult reality and come to terms with adult reality that there is um there is a huge problem with authority there's a huge problem with leadership with social decision making it seems to me like that that there's a huge crack in our social edifice with this and in in being inspired by Thus spoke Zarathustra and, and what he seems to be saying as necessary for, le for leadership and, and authority, you can understand why, is because you have to go on a, it's not just climbing certain rungs on the level of a social ladder to become a leader, like climbing certain rungs on the ladder of a, a, of a social hierarchy doesn't intrinsically make, give you what it takes to become a leader. Um, in fact, Zarathustra starts his his book as a down going not an up going so it's the in some sense the opposite of that but just that that what it requires to become a leader requires a lot of uh it seems like confronting a lot of inner antagonisms about wanting to be admired wanting to be followed the masculine and the feminine uh, the relationship between the masculine and the feminine, both externally and within one's own heart. Um, and so it would make sense, you know, in order to do that, you have to, in some sense, actively cultivate a spiritual relationship, which in my language would be pushing in the opposite or beyond the pleasure principle, not just living in relationship to the pleasure principle anyway. Of course, pleasure is fine, but engaging more paradoxical reality of pleasure and pain than most than ordinary consciousness and so basically to me that means is like our society we have to confront not just the lack of the big other death of god um but we have to ask ourselves the questions what type of practices what type of thinking what type of relating is required to become an abyssal arrow to become a, a an arrow that is pointing up or pointing in a positive direction but also has its roots in darkness or roots in an awareness of the more difficult and tragic realities of our existence and that that is where um authority comes from and it's not an authority which is it, when you just have leaders who are from an external hierarchy of climbing i think it's much more an authority that has to be in some sense structurally externally imposed whereas i feel like this type of leadership is something which 
in almost speaks of its own essence it it it, it shines forth out of its own essence there's no need for an external co coercion um it's more attractive uh it's a leader that it's a leadership position that, that attracts which i could probably go into a, a little bit more in regards to um one of the aspects of thus spoke zarathustra about the two kings where they're talking about what do kings matter today uh we don't need don't need kings in the same way and that we we want over men to be the rulers of the earth so it's not that we want to get rid of kings and have no rulers it's that we want to get rid of kings and we want to think about well what would be really a king like um you know in the way that we practiced hereditary monarchy in traditional um society it was just a biological inheritance so what i'm trying to think with spiritual leadership is more almost like spiritual inheritance as opposed to biological inheritance like what type of spiritual metamorphoses does one have to experientially be in touch with for authority and leadership to speak of its own um just of its own just of what it is A lot of different ways to translate ubermensch. I, I tend to go with something like ultra-human because I like the sound of it. Transhuman uh, might be a viable translation as well, but then it would over-associate it with the transhumanist movement. Uh, you've gone primarily with overman, an overman. Is that because you think that's a really good translation or just because you feel like it's a standard recognizable translation? Well, like you say, there are some here categories which are kind of already occupying the field and already have associated meanings like transhuman so i even though i do i did like in my doctoral thesis i actually went with the term i i used transhumanism more in a in a in a in a positive way that i maybe create more of a distance with now I mean, I, you could imagine some people saying metahuman, but you know that that word is 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 also occupied in some sense. Oh, overman. The the reason why overman is because it's it's to me the one that's most commonly used. It's the it's the one that's that's most easily recognizable as almost like exclusively occupied by the Nietzschean tradition, but also the theme of self overcoming. Self overcoming uh for basically the other you know like when when zarathustra saying you know what is my hat basically he starts off the book by saying oh great star uh what is your what is your your beauty or what is your shine if it's not for the other um and he actually ends the book on a similar notion so in some sense the idea of self-overcoming and the overman seemed to me to be that fits nicely it fits nicely it it, it anyway it, it it intuitively makes sense to me a few more points on that would probably be back to this idea that the human being is so fundamentally regulated by the desire for recognition um from the other and that the overman you know i guess that would be like my original idea when i was in my doctor and when i was talking about for example wanting to like overcome all needs for recognition there's this idea that that's, there's something about the human being that is so inextricably bound up i suppose i would argue with like dynamics of the oedipus complex 
of basically the early human identifications, identifications with the mother, identifications with the father, identifications in that way where there's a lot of inner aggressivity and drive and, and emotions bound up in those energies. And so the overman is seems to me to be someone who can be within those energies, but, but over those energies at the same time. And just confronting confronting myself on those dimensions is like, is there any more meaningful or difficult struggle than that? Like, I don't know. I don't like just looking at myself and just thinking about the transference relationships I have with the mother and the father energy. It's like there's a lot there and seems to it seems to require in order to confront that emotional reality it seems to require a lot of the overman's qualities like um courage uh comes to mind Str striving striving in the abyss becoming a lightning strike from a, becoming a lightning strike and and these types of metaphors that 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 need that Zarathustra will talk about throughout the book so that, that those are some of the first ideas i would have about why the overman is a is a is a suitable word i i notice you've um let people's different font choices stand in their different chapters is that mere laziness or a philosophical decision that's that's a philosophical decision because it, it would not be too difficult to there were more difficult aspects of the editing process than changing the the, the font style no i i left i left that because and and also uh, you know, there, there are some other things like whether you, all of the different stylistic decisions, basically of the authors, uh, let stand. And that's, um, that's, that's basically, um, it's, it's well, one again, just intuitively, I feel like that's what Zarathustra would want. Like it, it, just in terms of to let the, like, it's, it's like, there is a singularity, like we're like, there's a singularity in in the in thus book Zarathustra, where's the meaning of the earth is the overman. So it's not like there's it's not like there's a hundred hundred thousand meanings. There's 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 a meaning of the earth is the overman, but within that there's a multiplicity. Um, and within that there's like a very genuine multiplicity, like a thousand islands of of different life, right? or or you know thousands of different islands of life that have never existed before different places of the earth that have never been inhabited before um and so in that sense i wanted to to honor and also sort of have concretized a multiplicity pointing in in the same direction and and a multiplicity in terms of content and style there's uh a lot of chapters, a lot of interludes, a lot of contributors. We probably can't go through all of them, but we could go through a few and I can ask you about your impressions of them. And let's uh, let's do mine because it's clearly the best and we'll get it out of the way. And, and I want to say to people, there's actually a, a grammatical error I caught that I hadn't caught earlier, which is there's one section where it says morality and it should say mortality. That's a meaningful distinction, too. <laughs> what's, what's your what's your sense of my chapter what's my chapter about Cadell? <laughs> well the, th the, th the thing is is that you're like i will answer but your chapter is is one of the chapters where 
I do feel like I want to revisit it many times. One, because you explicitly call for it. You know, you say right at the end of the, right at the end of the, the article, uh, now start again from the beginning. And I feel like there's layers of meaning and layers of, of um, complexity in that piece that I'm, I'm going to be drawing from. But I mean, just basically, there's this idea to me in your work and in your version of Nietzsche, which is trying to call forth uh, a, a shamanistic psyche, uh, a shamanistic psyche, but at the same time, a shamanistic psyche, which is bringing with, which is bringing with um, itself, um, not just the return to the prehistory, like it's bringing the prehistory, but it's not just bringing the prehistory. It's it's bringing everything we've learned, you know, towards the global. Like you're bringing the big history, you're bringing the cosmology, you're bringing the big picture global vision. But you're so so. But you, it's like you're you're calling forth the shamanic on the global level. But the the main thing is just the tragedy and time dynamic, which is certain. Like to me, it's the the shift of cognition from the desire to be one with a perfect eternal reality, which never moves, never changes towards like the, the precondition to accepting time as such is, is tragedy. Um, and almost becoming like, I don't know how to say it, but like, the shaman is kind of like already the thing. What's your, uh, that's, that's some ideas that I get. <laughs> no, that's pretty good. And I'm, I'm happy to move quickly away from my own writing on this. Um, okay. Daniel is going to be here to, in a couple of days to talk about belonging again. So let's check in with your impression of his section on the overman and the allegory of the cave. What, uh, yeah. what stood out or resonated with you about that section? Yeah, no, I've I've had more time to to think about Daniel's piece because I know he's been thinking about that for some time, um, and I've had a chance to talk to him about it as well. Basically, what I see as central in his piece and in his in his general thrust is the the issue of motivation, and the issue of motivation as in some sense being approached through the figures of Plato and, and, and Zarathustra, where he's problematizing the way in which Plato develops the allegory of the cave and liberation and emancipation from the cave walls and the cave shadows by identifying that Plato doesn't go into sufficient detail about what motivates the prisoners from releasing themselves from the appearances in the first place. So he's He's saying that there's a problem in Plato with the status of motivation is what actually motivates. What is the motivation for liberation? What is the motivation for emancipation in the first place? Um, and I think what he sees in Nietzsche and Zarathustra is this uh, deeper understanding of, of motivation and specifically making this move towards can we leave Plato's cave and become Zarathustra's children? is the 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 main the main thrust of of the argument and connecting that to the idea that Nietzsche's child is a self self-motivated is a self a self-turning wheel 
that's a really beautiful question to open up because once one mentions it, it becomes extremely obvious that there's really no recognition of motivation in a lot of the platonic work. Why does someone try to go out of the cave and why do others stay in the cave? It's simply not addressed. It's presumed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that that also, I mean, there's, because there's another author in the volume, Jayati Dalal, who's also bringing up this connection between Plato and Nietzsche and, and specifically the idea of Plato's cave. And it's, you know, it's, it's that, that I would say is an interesting way to read Thus Spoke Zarathustra is the way Nietzsche is using the cave throughout the book, right? Like how, how is he dramatizing thematizing the position of the cave i mean the cave comes up in many in many different contexts uh not only at the beginning but also in the fourth and final part where they're having basically like a last supper and things like that so again i i'd, I'd assume that 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 was not um that was not a uh coincidence that nietzsche is using that uh that specific imagery so there might be oh a larger philosophical conversation there because of course Nietzsche had his uh, views on Plato. Well, speaking of Giotti, um, the section on thinking education in Nietzsche is an intriguing one. And Nietzsche has this famous piece of Schopenhauer as educator, which later in Ecce Homo, he says, was never really about Schopenhauer. It was Nietzsche as educator. So the Nietzsche's attempt to think himself as having an educational approach is very clear through a lot of his works. What do you see? Um, what do you see in the section thinking education in Nietzsche? How is Nietzsche thinking education? What's what's the kind of education that we would consider to be an arrow across or out of the abyss? Yeah, I mean, I, this is something that that there's some there are some questions we confront. And there are some dimensions we confront in Nietzsche, which just make you want to either blow your project apart or rethink it from the ground up or, you know, just it just because if you're going to fully take it on, if you're going to really fully take it seriously, then you've 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 almost got to question yourself from fundamental presuppositions and fundamental axioms of of what you're doing. And I, I think that that Nietzsche's education is is obviously one that's just in the real of in the real of embodied speech and action itself i mean it's it's not going to be a classroom setting um it's going to be a situation where life is the class and and what does that mean practically speaking for education is well if i had any clue i guess i would be doing it but the way i'm pointing towards in my mind is like where my ideal would be is that we would i don't know i i have this i have this idea ideal that we need to have like more educational retreats where we need to have more physical embodied retreat settings and and things in this direction i know you've been experimenting with that uh in in the meta modern circles and with brendan graham dempsey so i i suppose it, it it in some sense points at least in that direction um but also I don't know, like to complexify it, I think it points towards an education which in some sense cannot be institutionally modeled as such. Like I think back to certain people that I met contingently and became teachers for me. Um, I think back to people who I just met outside of institutional context and became 
you know, taught me life lessons, for example. Um, uh, my relationships, my intimate relationships being being great teachers. Trips. I just, you know, I'm just I'm thinking about certain trips where I just, for example, when I started my doctorate, I basically experimented with being homeless in Greece for a month. Like that's a type of, I think, something that that maybe would be more in the style of Nietzschean education. Um, these types of things that uh, this is where my mind points. But the point, I think, to bring it back to Jayati's paper is basically, I think for her, it's education with thinking about the relation between philosophy and politics is that her basic idea is that Plato creates a situation where there's a gap between philosophy and politics, where philosophy is pristine and politics is messy. And we need to have a situation where philosophy is on high and away from the political. Whereas she sees in Nietzsche, there has to be a unity between philosophy and politics, where basically our ideals have to get messy. And that's something that at least I try to embody in my work where to the extent that I can, I want to get involved with the people who come to philosophy portal. I don't want it to be separate, but you know, there, there's also um, incredible contradictions here. One of the sections uh, that for me had the most intriguing title was Nietzsche's Tantra and Girard's Sutra. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just so many implications baked into that couple of words that it's delightful. Um, what what do you take away from that chapter? What do you think is the uh, the essence of the conjunction that's being brought forth there? Another very interesting one, and I've had the pleasure of talking to Thomas Hammerick about this several times, um, so I feel like I understand his basic argument really well, is basically, you know, there's this this idea that like I said, Nietzsche is a political thinker. I think Nietzsche is a first politics, but like I said, I don't think Nietzsche can ground any one political program. And I think that's basically because Nietzsche is like um, a tantric, he's like a tantric ecstatic explosion almost. Whereas Hamlerick is trying to basically situate Nietzsche into a dialectical relationship with Gerard or Sutra, which is basically more of a model of uh, prohibition and renunciation. So on the one hand, you have the ecstasy, you have the adventure, you have the transgression. On the other hand, you have the prohibition, you have the renunciation, you have the, 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 I guess the normative order. And you have to have some sort of dialectical relationship between the two in order to stabilize a paradigm or to stabilize a, a social order that, you know, for Thomas, what he's concerned with is he thinks sutras are just basically prohibitions, renunciations are just disappearing and everything is becoming ecstasy. Everything is becoming, people want ecstasy now and they don't want any prohibitions about it. So for him, he wants to basically put the brakes on overly emphasizing thinkers like Nietzsche or overly emphasizing thinkers like Lacan and bringing them into some sort of dialectical relationship with figures like Gerard, who are going to be more emphasizing perhaps the institutional standpoint or going to be perhaps emphasizing, um, say, day-to-day -day life um, and some of the, the, some of the um, 
prohibitions that need to be res respected uh, in order to ground a day-to-day -day life. It actually reminds me of, I'm reading a book right now by Daniel Tut, who is um, uh, writing about the psychoanalysis of the family. And he's arguing that one of the mistakes of the countercultural revolution of the 1960s and the 1970s was that they wanted a revolution of everyday life in which all family prohibitions, all family boundaries were just blown apart. The abolition of the family, basically. Um, and the institutionalization of a, a post-Oedipal landscape as opposed to what Tut will say is like the patience required to work with a model of emancipation within the context of family life, for example. So to me, Nietzsche's Tantra and Gerard Sutra would be on the one hand trying to avoid perhaps a fundamentalist or a traditional point of view, which is overly prohibitionary, overly uh, renunciatory, but at the same time trying to avoid the 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 pure ecstasy, the pure the pure um, removal of any boundaries. In my experience, practically with with groups that I see embodying the extremes of both, I would say the you'd have like on the one extreme, you'd have like the burners communities where there's no boundaries, and I think that you just get into basically the immediacy dimension. Um, but then on the other side, you have like the fundamentalists, uh, usually fundamentalist monotheist traditions which are too renunciatory, too based on very strong, uh, strict boundaries. Um, and we need to basically go between these two uh, and think beyond both. Seems like everybody's got to have some kind of structured dialectical relationship between release and constraint. Yeah. But that relationship may be different for different types of people or different roles in the community, right? Because there is this discussion about, you know, a tantric minority and a, a sutric general population, right? And when we come to Nietzsche, uh, it's pretty plausible that he's making explicit the fact that his writings are not meant for a general readership, perhaps even not a general philosophical readership, but aimed specifically at a, a minority subset who may not even exist yet in the time he's writing. Uh, so it seems like one of the areas where there might be some interplay between uh, Girardian constraint and Nietzschean ecstasy is in the idea that the ecstatic emphasis is for a a specific subset of the population how does that land with you well i agree i agree and i i think there's interesting conversations here about about what that means and different political interpretations of what that could mean i mean the 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 main the main thing is if we're in a society which is going to affirm the social reproduction of itself which to me remarkably is a question <laughs> like it's not clear to me that that's the direction our society is heading is that we we would like to keep reproducing ourselves actually the first the first scientific paper i ever wrote was hypo speculating about the end of biological reproduction in the context of the technological singularity, which I still think is an incredibly rich uh, area for thinking. As many people know in the developed world, you have 
uh, birth rates going below the um, the the replacement level. Um, and if that just reproduces itself throughout the entire planet eventually, with the only major outliers at the moment being Africa, then we are in a situation where we have to have that conversation about the reproduction of the species. Now, if we are reproducing the species, then by definition, you're not going to have the majority of people in a tantric minority. By definition, you, you, I don't think that you can both engage in the reproduction of the species, or at least it would be very difficult to engage in the reproduction of the species and be a tantric minority at the same time. It seems to me like the tantric minority, and this is, I guess, where I would ask you the question is, if you think my analysis here is off or, or on, is the tantric I minority... I mean, just, I, I, I... Yeah. Just what? Qu question. Just the, 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 the question would be, is the tantric minority um, a sort of self-selected group of um, individuals or trans individuals that are actively removing themselves from the constraints of biological reproduction and exploring the exploring what it means to be an adult outside of those constraints i would say yes in general but i also think that that's a a very specific way to articulate what they're doing um seems to me that we're dealing with a a range of neurogenetic atypicalities uh, with a variety of different styles uh, and a variety of different degrees of capacity to be grounded in the world, right? And I think if there was a richer contemporary body of lore and community of practice to select and recognize and hold and cultivate these people, that their ability to take more of a place in the ordinary dynamics of the world would be increased. Now, I don't think that would be true for all of them, because I think there is a kind of range or even a gradient, let's say, among the people who are involved in these activities. Uh, I think that the interface between the so-called tantric or shamanic minority and the general population is going to take several different forms. So like one form it's going to take is they have to escape from that in order to pursue, pursue alternative maturational possibilities. But another form it has to take is they have to generate forms and be cultivators and healers of the general population and help them to uh, organize their meaning making in the direction of activities that will be productive for the general population. Like, so they have to be able to uh, understand them and go among them and be comfortable with them and have, have enough sway among them that they can co-generate mimetic patterns that encourage those people to feel that something like reproduction is very meaningful. And then that's a subset of helping them to understand that all of the general conventional patterns are in fact very meaningful if you want to get into it. Um, so I think there's a number of different ways for that to go. And I think it all very often depends on the subtype of tantric that you're dealing with and also the phase in which you're dealing with it. I think, uh, let's say a juvenile tantric <laughs> individual might need a lot more space and protection in order to pursue alternative emerging pathways. But if they mm -hmm. got a little more mature and a little more stable, they might be much more comfortable deciding how much of the conventional that they could live into and still perform those functions. Right. Right. I, I, I've, I've got some 
sort of and well like i guess i'm i'm i i do have some resistance to to the at the same time it makes sense the binary classification it does make sense it does make sense um and at the same time i feel so, some some resist resistance to it but I get the sense that for people who are a little more in this direction of the shamanic and the tantric, however we want to classify it, is that they're going to be strongly, they're going to be creating a strong negation and a strong um, opposition to the ordinary consciousness, to, to mass society when they're individuating. Um, but like you're saying, um, the older they get, the more mature they become, there's going to be less of that uh, need to create a strong opposition or that need to create a strong distinction. And again, same time, I would ask you the question is, what's the difference between a shamanic or tantric type who's making that strong distinction? And say, I see the same types of things with the with people who are going in a fundamentalist direction. They'll make this strong distinction that we are, for example, X religious group, and the rest of the world is is in the untruth um and it seems to me like the same thing can happen in the tantric dimension is what do you think about that oh it's certainly a risk and it's one of the reasons that you need like a a large set of diverse tantric types uh and a community in which they can be trained past matured past their simplistic reaction patterns Right. So they may need protection and they may need to create that negation of the ordinary. But if you have a, a, a let's say a healthy, robust tantric training community, they're also trying to ecstatically exceed their own reactive patterns against the conventional, as well as to exceed their binary thinking and their sense of uh, enclosure and fragile self-isolation. So you would expect if that community was working well, that it would have practices and attitudes that undermined um the negative aspects of that division now very often that's not going to be the case especially in a civilization where there isn't a lot of recognition or support for people to engage in those practices but i think it could be made richer and more robust and there is something about the binary itself that's a little bit problematic it has a utility but uh, I usually think of a mesoteric category between esoteric and exoteric that mediates to some degree uh, but also, I think we need to be careful to depressurize the simplicity of that binary because we're looking at not, you know, we're not looking at fish versus wombats. We're not looking at radically different structures. We're looking at the normal set of human inclinations in a different balance so that everybody who has rich human experience will be able to recognize the things that are going on in, among the tantrics. It's just that for them, it's much more prominent and much more compulsive. I mean, a lot of it seems to me with the with the tantric direction is it it's basically you're taking more of um, life energy on board, like your will. Like yeah. there's not like a specific there's not like a specific uh, belief. There's not like a specific symbol. There's not like a specific book. Like with a fundamentalist, it would be like a specific book, a specific belief. Like Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is my dude, right? The book is my this is this is the book, right? Like um whereas with the tantrics it seems to be basically i'm gonna take on all of life's energy like i'm everything that's moving through me i'm going to accept and work with is that uh what do you think of that yeah absolutely because i mean if you it, for me when i imagine like 
evolutionarily generated human populations, what do they need? Right? They need to be able to specialize, but they also need to not get trapped in over-optimization to one set of patterns. So they need people, they need to be in conversation with people who are exploring the full range of possibilities in order to be able to tell when they've gone astray, when it might need to be switched out, things like that. Um, hmm. And it's more difficult, right? It's a much bigger challenge and many more things can go wrong if you want to try to generate, to be a regenerator of Dharma by taking any of the energies you confront and trying to spiritualize and integrate them. That's a huge degree of challenge. It's going to fail very often. It's going to be partially completed very often. It's something not everybody is ready to deal with, uh, but there does need to be a, a strong input from people who have succeeded fairly well at that task into the types of dharmas that everyone else is using in order to make sure that those dharmas are effective, safe, healthy, and actually empowering for those communities and not merely degenerative or nihilistic dharmas. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's I suppose I mean I suppose that 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 that's what that's what a Nietzschean education would point towards. It's it's like it's like pointing away, it's like pointing away from adherence of scripture to one book, adherence to belief in one supernatural being to almost um an adherence to working with working with life. And and working with all of the emotional energies, working with uh, the negativities and the positivities, the intensity of affect, um, first and foremost. And you know, I, I think that in the in the countercultural revolution, there was that ethos. There's just this it's it's this impossible thing to put into language. At least I struggle to put it into language. Is like basically the dialectics of that affirmation basically like which is yes i agree with that affirmation but it's not practical to bring all seven billion humans online at the same time with that affirmation there needs to be some sort of pragmatic distinction which is i suppose where you get the initial binary where people in their life world and the affirmation of the social reproduction of the species can be maintained and we can sort of accept the energies which are structuring that reproduction which is i think the mother the father and the child with i think we should have a deeper concept of extended family networks but then there's this other space and i think it's it's like moving from the one of fundamentalist religion to this other space and the other space which is not capable because you're working with life energies as such it's not enclosable into a one and will never be enclosable into a one the the key thing that stands out for me and if we use the simplistic binary of like say the shamans and the villagers so to speak yeah <laughs> the, the key thing we need to keep in focus is they're supposed to be mutually collaborative right there's a certain level of antagonism needed for just feeling that you're different and that you should focus on something that maybe the people around you aren't focusing on but fundamentally in order for a culture to thrive my impression is the the conventional society has to recognize and have a good opinion of the role of the tantric and the tantric people have to understand that what they're doing is ultimately of service 
to the sutric people, of service to the villagers. Those are not just a bunch of diluted conventional sleeping sheep or something like that, right? Right. The reason we're engaged in this other activity is to be able to provide something to the other type of people because we're in the same system together. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's 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 a lot there i mean and at the same time like you do get this idea like which is in in thus to bring it to, to bring it to thus book zarathustra you, you do get this idea that the there there's a rabble of ordinary consciousness but there is also a way in which it's zarathustra is saying you know the father the mother and the child can also be a striving for the overman so it's not simply uh, in order to become the overman, you have to go hiking in the mountains by yourself for five years. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, doing some like uh, crazy, uh, unrepeatable spiritual adventure. Um, although it does also include that. I, I think I think it, I think it whatever, wherever you find yourself in this distinction of, quote unquote, the villagers, quote unquote, the the tantric uh, excess. Is is again the real intimate struggle of the self overcoming and 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 basically to me like i ask myself in my own life practically is like is there anyone in my life where i would where i'm really absenting myself for the other is there um and like for me the closest practically speaking is an intimate partner like where i'll i'll abs like that's okay like that's practically speaking situations i've encountered in the last years where i will absent myself for the other i will make life sacrifices for the other and it's not that i'm not other centric in other contexts like i try to be other centric if like i'm doing a if i'm doing a one-on-one -on -one with a student or if i'm trying to make another uh, another person's paper as best as it can be um or or trying to give a good class or to, to provide services i'll try to make myself absent for the other but that has a, a a limit uh which is a pretty hard limit close to the bone so to speak whereas i get the image and i don't know if this is like just an ideal which is you know just a, a mirage but I get this idea that the, the the tantric guru, the tantric master, is in some sense he's sacrificed. He's again sacrifice of the sacrifice. It's not even a sacrifice, but he's just for the other. Like and and like the. I mean, again, I don't know if it's an illusion or a mirage, but like when I read about Rajneesh's communities or something like that, it 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 certainly points in that in that direction where. It, it seems like the tantric is almost like a midwife for the spirit. These are just ideas. <laughs> no, I think that's a that's a lovely phrase that captures a lot of the phenomenon. Uh, there's a couple other chapters in this book that I felt had delightful titles. <laughs> I'd love to hear your impressions on thinking jouissance in Nietzschean negentropy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my favorite papers, and and Chitan has been a Chitan's been a great collaborator for for some time. We uh, we first connected when I was doing the Return to Freud series, and he's been um, he's a he's actually a professor at a at an Indian university in social sciences, and 
he brings psychoanalysis to the political. And uh, just like I was saying, Nietzsche, I think, is a political thinker. I think that he's uh, bringing both the concept of the overman, Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's idea of the overman, into conversations with both um, political thought, psychoanalytic thought, and scientific thought. So there's a lot there to unpack. Um, of course, on the side of jouissance, the psychoanalytic concept is basically like this deadly enjoyment, this enjoyment. And I think that he's right to say that in our current political discourses, he points out a lot of interesting paradoxes where it's not simply like these simplistic um, early models of psychoanalysis where the it is the instincts and the superego is the moral authority. It's like the superego can also uh, be an agent of the id in some sense as well. Like, like he gives uh, uh, examples where there are certain um, fanatical, fanatical groups where they get a deadly enjoyment from, for example, genocidal action, for example. Uh, he gave examples about in the context in India um, where there are certain groups that will murder other religious groups and their, their superego moralizes the killing. Right. And they get an enjoyment from this uh, from this um, from this behavior. So the, the jouissance is he's basically bringing this idea of deadly enjoyment to the political level and then connects it to negentropy, which is this basically thermodynamic term for the opposite of entropy, the opposite of the tendency of the universe to disorder is the tendency of the universe towards a, a higher order. Um, and so I think he's saying basically that in our political reality, we need to think through the concept of jouissance and negentropy as connected, namely where a culture gets this deadly enjoyment inscribed into their superego, this is the dimension of their, their political order, their political uh, totality. It's almost like this um, excess, which is difficult to talk about and is even like, uh, you know, um, perhaps humiliating or embarrassing on a certain level is actually what's unifying the entire political structure like i can give an example like i, I was friends with like a um i was friends with a, a christian family when i was growing up and they got i thought like thinking in retrospect they got like a perverse enjoyment from the muslim other like the muslim other was like uh bringing a weird like they they did they disliked the muslim other but they enjoyed disliking the muslim, <laughs> the muslim other <laughs> and this actually brought the unity to their totality also marxism for them so like they they hated marxism but they also loved to hate marxism so it's like this this dimension of uh and thinking about this dimension of our political reality yeah that's something i think very pertinent to nietzsche's work and also something that runs through a lot of these essays is that um and it's something that Daniel Garner points out really well in some of his works on like release and constraint that both of those are in play. One of the impressions I get in Nietzsche a lot is the sense that we usually in a kind of egalitarian society, we only look at half of the internal perverse dynamic, right? We say, ah, oh, I shouldn't be so hard on myself. And you're identifying with the half of you that something's being hard on, but you're not identifying with the half of you that's enjoying being hard on the other half. Right. Don't beat yourself up. But like somebody in there is taking pleasure in beating you up. Right. So in order to figure out this structure, you've got to see the perverse enjoyment coming from both ends and not think it's just at one end and some neutral constraint is being applied to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's 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 a really it's a really weird thing. And it's and it's it's easy like it, it's 
even if you learn about it intellectually, it's very easy to forget about it when you're in the middle of it yourself. But yeah, it's 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 this it's this thing which I think um, Isabel Millar, who's going to be teaching in the upcoming uh, a Cree course, she calls uh, patty politics, which is the politics of suffering and enjoyment, where we kind of have this weird structure. I think it's also like beyond sort of, let's say, um, a political horizon you could call of a liberal hedonism, where we just uh, enjoy our simple pleasures and <laughs> we, you know, we like our uh, whatever our we enjoy our our comforts our our, our individual comforts uh towards a, polit a politics of enjoyment and suffering where we see how entangled they are with each other you know the things we enjoy the things we struggle and suffer with are more closely connected than we um oftentimes assume or would like to think or would be willing to think in some situations the other title that stood out to me a lot was uh, overbecoming hyperhumanism as a bridge toward interbeing which is a great set of words in a row uh, <laughs> shout out to you, carl uh, yeah shout out to carl fantastic title uh, what's your take on that section yeah carl hayden smith is uh, someone who i've enjoyed collaborating with as well and i actually had a chance to meet him in london recently and uh, yeah, definitely shout out to him because he actually presented on Abyssal Arrows at the uh, Psychedelic Society in London. So that was that was great to see, and and it gave me new insight also on the on the article and um, what he's trying to do with that. So he's trying basically to put the idea of what he calls um, hyperhumanism into. Uh, conversation with humanisms and transhumanisms and he sees the hum a lot of the humanisms and the transhumanisms as more on the side of what Nietzsche would call the last man and the idea of the hyperhumanism and overbecoming is I think the simplest way I've sort of found a way to describe it is it's not anti-technological but it doesn't put technology as the end point in other words, it's not the it's not technology is not the point. And I think that what he's saying is, especially with the transhumanists, is that they kind of make technology the end point, sometimes quite literally, like I'm not I'm not here trying to make a straw man of the transhumanists is like. If you're saying artificial general intelligence is the future, if you're saying that uh, we're going to upload our minds into a supercomputer. Which is literally a project then you're saying technology is kind of the end it's that's that's what that's the point whereas carl's saying we should use technology as a bridge to open up a new world um and his emphasis is not so much on technology as the end but on different sensory modalities as the end basically expanding our sensory modalities expanding he'll use umwelts a lot the idea of the umwelt and expanding our sensory perception you know he says some things in the presentation which i still don't really understand but said like you know we have basically way more than five senses uh for example and i don't know i did this is something you'd have to take up with carl if uh, on the topic of how many senses we actually have according to carl i think we have 40 or 50 different senses i don't know you know but the point being it's kind of like a psychedelically informed pro-technological view 
which is saying in the end, we're going towards an expanded sensory world, which will take us away from the way we've defined our world in a humanist terms through the five senses alone. Hopefully that's a good description of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll have to check with him about that. <laughs> um, I was uh, just this morning, I was reading through uh, Pamela's interlude on living as Eros and body as the source of the divine. Uh, I'm, and I, I know and I like Pamela a lot. It's, it brings a different flavor to this whole project. And I was curious how you thought about the relationship between interludes and chapters as well as your impression of Pamela's interlude in particular. Yeah, so the, the interludes are the interludes are designed to play around with new styles um, and allow for a type of creative expression which um, which uh, otherwise uh, wouldn't be um, incorporated into a traditional philosophy anthology. Um, and again, sort of in my mind, I'm sort of thinking about how could we not just write about Nietzsche, but write in a way that Nietzsche would be like, oh, that's an interesting little experiment there. So like, for example, um, Dimitri Croymans, uh, have has an interlude in there, which is just uh, rap lyrics from a song that he released last month. With Pamela's uh, idea about Eros, and, I, I've, and that's the great thing is that I've had a chance to, to, to speak to a lot of these people in the real about their about their work so that 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 to me always gives uh added teeth to to the way i come to their papers but what if eros is the other is like to me the main question there is what if eros is the other i think that's related to what we were talking about about the fundamentalist one and the tantric otherness um is what if eros is the other is like basically what if we take this unintegratable ununifiable other as life itself um and we simply affirm that and use that as our basically our our, our educational um e educationally informing us basically yeah i just i just basically see what she's saying as an ode to life also an ode to the feminine um an ode to um you know the feminine being something that cannot be enclosed into a one just life life itself and and so that's that's some those are some of the ideas that come to my mind when i think of, of her paper beautiful well we must be getting pretty near the end of this uh is there anything what else if you just randomly searched your mind for something in this book that i haven't asked you about what pops out what's just uh one of the strange lurking things that's in you mm -hmm. now because of what people contributed to this volume um well i would just overall i mean i'm just i have to say that one of the most pleasant surprises i've had with with philosophy portal is is the quality of papers that i've received and the quality of projects i've received um and had a pleasure reading i mean i think the main thing and maybe this is a reflection of the teaching but maybe it's just a reflection of the book thus spoke zarathustra is the 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 really the position of the child as something that 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 strikes as a theme throughout this uh throughout this book um and thinking about the child i think what's liberatory or emancipatory in 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 thus spoke zarathustra is 
the way in which the child can be theorized both biologically and spiritually. Uh, to me, that's very powerful and very useful. Um, and it, it, it brings us to, I think, like a meta order tension, which is not just, um, which is not simply, um, again, not simply a multiplicity. It is a multiplicity, but it, it, it's not simply a multiplicity in the sense that there is a, a singular through line. Um, and I do think that that helps orientation and it helps in regards to thinking about spiritual development as well, having this idea of the child, because it seems to me like if we're going to take, let me use the straw men again of like the extremes of the burners or the extremes of the fundamentalists. It seems to me like both of those extremes, sometimes they, they leave out the dialectics of the child. And it seems to me like both of those energies could be matured in relationship to the child that runs in some sense through some of your uh commentaries on the idea that this uh tantric community should also be in service of the village and vice versa that's 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 one that's one thing the other thing i would say two things quickly is there's a theme in abyssaleros throughout the chapters 17 and 20 which to me are about the birth of a new paradigm so not simply death of god theology, but also the birth of a new paradigm from the abyss. Um, and those uh, writers are usually in touch with technology, but they're not anti-technology, but they're also not, again, deifying technology. So I think there's an interesting mixture um, of thought there that um, I find very helpful. And then the, the final thing I'll say is that there's also a section towards the end of the anthology, uh, I say from Interlude 7, including chapter 21 through, let's just say the end of the book, which is uh, more pointing towards the dimension of um, thinking about family and spiritual life, um, which I do think is important. I think it's under theorized philosophically. Um, and it's something that is on my mind, not just for personal reasons, but also because I'm heading into uh, teaching about psychoanalysis. And I do think that philosophy in the same way that philosophy is forever changed after Nietzsche, I think philosophy has to also confront how it needs to change after psychoanalysis. Um, and so thinking through the philosophy of the family and the philosophy of community and the philosophy of society at large is, is something that um, I think will be occupying my mind moving forward. Yeah, the position of the family is a really interesting one, because on the one hand, it sort of uh, is a necessary structure for the regeneration of the human population. Uh, but on the other hand, it can serve as a, a powerful developmental self-transforming and ecstatic engine, because like psychoanalysis, it's a place where your inner contradictions and energies are constantly surfaced because you're vulnerable to their exposure in the intimacy of that space in a way that you can guard yourself from in other social contexts. Yeah, that's 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 I think to me the that's to me what we've missed, at least in this framing of the countercultural revolution being sort of like a revolution of everyday life, which wants to in some sense abolish the family is that you we create these individualistic self enclosures of of hedonistic pleasure where we precisely uh guard ourselves from uh the vulnerabilities and the exposure to a certain intimacy 
which I do think has uh, the characteristics that are best described as a type of, um, let's say, lustful energy towards the feminine or the mother uh, and an aggressive energy towards the father or the patriarch. And this lustful energy and this aggressive energy is uh, it comes out in all sorts of weird ways. And it just makes society impossible if we don't at least own and take and I that's what I like about psychoanalysis is that you have to take responsibility for the unconscious just because you have an unconscious. That doesn't mean that you're just off the hook. It's like, oh, <laughs> it's like, sorry about that. You know, you know, you've got to take responsibility for the unconscious and you've got to, um, in some sense, be willing to be vulnerable, like you said, to the exposure of that intimacy. Well, that it brings up an interesting thing for me, because at the end of an interview, I've kind of got a choice, right? I can uh, thank you and uh, surface the values and do a little summary, but also, and partly because I think of psychoanalysis when I think of you, there's this notion that Lacan would sort of arbitrarily break off a therapy session to keep the ambiguity in play and keep someone like feelingly in contact with the unconscious contexts that have been surfaced by just sort of... Uh, uh, arbitrarily cutting. <laughs>